continue the series with David to the next couple of weeks, and we're going to take a break, and uh, we're going to begin a, a, a year beginning series uh, called Focus 2020. We're going to talk about the new year, and what we and so we're going to spend January talking about prayer and how to pray and how to pray more effectively. Uh, February, we're going to talk about marriage. Uh, then then we'll, we'll actually get back into the life of David for a while until we get to Easter. So we've got, you know, some things, things planned. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to stay with David for another week, and then we're going we're gonna to take a break. Today's, uh, today is probably one of David's roughest days. Uh, so we're calling this Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, and once you hear the story, you'll know what it talks about. This is a little article that was written by John Bloom, who is, uh, he's the editor-in-chief at DesiringGod.com, which is uh, John Piper's website for Desiring God Ministries. It was spring again. David once had loved warm, fragrant spring afternoons on the palace roof, but this year the scent of almond blossoms smelled like deep regret. David had no desire to look toward Uriah's empty house. If only he had not looked that way a year ago. The memory throbbed with pain. His conscience had warned him to stop watching Bathsheba. But in his desire-induced inertia, it felt like he couldn't pull himself away. What pathetic self-deception couldn't pull himself away. He would never have tolerated such a weak excuse in another man. If Nathan had unexpectedly shown up while he was leering, he, would he have pulled himself away? Oh, yes. Wouldn't have risked his precious reputation, but there on the roof alone he had lingered. And in those minutes, sinful indulgence metastasized into a wicked, ultimately lethal plan. David wept. His sovereign, lustful selfishness had stripped a married woman of her honor, murdered her loyal, valiant husband, and killed his own innocent baby boy. Bathsheba was now left with a desolate, hollow sadness, and he shuddered at the Lord's dark promise, the sword will never depart from your house. The destruction had not run its full course. How had it come to this? David thought back to those hard harrowing years when Saul chased him around Horish. How often he had felt desperate, barely one step ahead of death. Daily he had depended on God for survival. Now he longed for escape and peace back then. Now he viewed those days as among the best of his life. And then the tumultuous, heady days of uniting Judah and Israel under his kingship and subduing his enemies. And it had all climaxed with God's almost unbelievable promise, promise to establish David's throne forever. Had a man ever been so blessed by God, every promise to him had been kept. Everything David touched had flourished. Never had Israel as a nation been so spiritually alive, so politically stable, so wealthy, so militarily powerful. And at the peak of this unprecedented prosperity, David had committed such heinous sin. Why? How could he have resisted so many temptations in dangerous, difficult days and then yield at the height of his success. And almost as soon as the question formed in his mind, he knew the answer. Pride. Monstrous, self-obsessed pride. Honored by God, 
a hero to his people, a terror to his enemies, surrounded by fawning assistance and overflowing affluence, the poisonous weed of self-worship had grown insidiously in David's heart. The lowly shepherd that God by sheer grace had plucked from Bethlehem's hills to serve as king had been eclipsed in his own mind by David the Great, the Savior of Israel, a man whose exalted status entitled him to special privileges. David cupped his face in his hands as his shame washed over him again. Bathsheba's body had been nothing more than a special privilege he had decided to bestow on himself. And in so doing, he had placed himself above God, his office, his nation, Uriah's honor in life, Bathsheba's welfare, everything. David had sacrificed everything to the idol of himself. David fell on his face and wept again, and he poured out his broken, contrite heart to God. We are never more vulnerable to sin than when we achieve success are admired by others and are prosperous as King David tragically discovered. You think about it, it doesn't make sense hardly, does it? The greatest test of our character is not struggle. The greatest test of our character is success. We've all seen people of great skill and gift and integrity and people who know God and have walked with God do some really, really foolish things. We've all seen it. And you think about it, things are going well for David. I mean, he's finally been made king over Israel after running for his life for so many years. He's been victorious over every enemy. He's subduing all his enemies. He's filled the temple, literally filled the temple with silver and gold from his enemies. He's brought back the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, He's brought it to Jerusalem. He has instituted uh, praise and worship. Now, praise and worship is ongoing at his direction. Uh, He's kept his promise to Jonathan, and he has bestowed favor on Mephibosheth, his only surviving son. And God has promised to David in the midst of this, he told David, uh, I'm not going to let you build the temple, but I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build an eternal dynasty for you. There's going to be a king come from you that's going to sit on the throne forever. And then this happened. I know you've all heard the story. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Then she went back home. The woman conceived, and she sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent for Uriah and uh, brought him back to Jerusalem 
so that he could spend some time with his wife and could cover his tracks so David could cover his sin. But Uriah would have none of it. He would not indulge himself and allow himself to go to his house while his fellow soldiers were sleeping in tents in the field. He said, how can I do this wrong? So David even desperately tried to get him drunk and even get him in getting drunk. He just went to sleep on his mat with David's other servants. So David wrote a letter to Joab and he sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So right in the midst of his biggest success, his biggest failure. <laughs> How? I mean, think about it. This, he's a spiritually mature person. He, he, has, he has forged his faith in the fire of struggle. He's forged a relationship with God from the, from the time of being a small boy. And he's, he knows God personally. God has given David insight into the plans of God and even into the, the story of the Redeemer, David, as the psalmist, writes these psalms about things that are the depths of God. He's, he knows more theology than the priest of the land because God has revealed it to him. He knew the Scripture. He knew how to worship. So you, it, might, it kind of leaves you with a situation. If David can't do it, how can we? If David couldn't stand against sin, if David didn't have a, a chance, and yet he seemed to have every advantage, he's a man after God's own heart, he knows the word, he knows how to worship, he knows how to pray, he knows how to run, when he needs to run, how, how, can, how can we survive? And so I, I think there's an answer. How do, we keep like, how do we keep from falling like David did? And I think there's a couple of things, a couple of truths that can help us. One is pride. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. You're never as weak as when you think you're strong. Paul said, I delight in my weakness because when I'm weak, he's strong. When you recognize how desperately you need Christ, when you think, well, I, you know, I'm better than that. I would never do that. Watch out. If you think you're above it, you're not. David wasn't. So you have to recognize pride can often put us in a place where we're easily succumb even because we don't think we will. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, this is a scripture that has been way misquoted. A lot of people use this scripture to say, God won't put on you more than you can bear. And they, they say it in relationship to trials and difficulties. In other words, if you're going through a difficult season, God won't put more on you than you can bear. And that's just not true. Because there's a lot of people that have died for their faith. And I don't know if you know that, but that's more than you can bear. Right? Or it's, so this, how, how, much, how much will God let you go through? An incredible amount. But he will always be with you in the midst of the struggle. This is not a promise that God's not going to put on you more difficulty than you can handle. You know, some, some people say, well, God doesn't... God thinks a lot more of me than I do. But this is about temptation. Everyone is tempted. Temptation is common to all of us. And we're all tempted in the same way. And with every temptation, there is always a way of escape. Every temptation provides us with a way to escape temptation. No temptation has overtaken you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. With that temptation, there is always a way out. What is the way out? Well, one is you've got to deal with this pride issue. A prideful person doesn't make themselves accountable to others. And I, I say this, I want you to understand this clearly. When I say accountability is always something that you have to offer to other people. No one can make you accountable. I've had people say to me, I want you to make me accountable. Good luck with that. There's no way for me to make you be accountable. Because there's no way for me to know what you're doing. There's no way to know that you're telling me the truth. Because you know, I don't know if you know this, but we will lie to cover ourselves and make ourselves look good. So accountability has to always be volunteered. It has to be given. A prideful person doesn't receive or encourage correction. Think about this. When, when, the, when someone said to David, She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. His response should have been, oh, oh, I need to, you know. And actually, that guy was trying to tell him, hey, uh, this, that, that girl on the roof is out of bounds. She's married to one of your mighty men. One of 37 of David's greatest warriors, Uriah the Hittite, was one of those men She's married to Uriah the Hittite. You know Uriah the Hittite. This should have been a warning to him, but yet he just, he just blew it off. So he, surrounded, he has surrounded himself with people, and possibly all the people who could have said something to him are off the commander of the army. They're off away from him, and he surrounded himself with people that uh, he, they're afraid to confront him. 
He's the king. The fear is a powerful is a powerful tool. So you you need people in your life that you can be truthful with and that they can be truthful with you about you. And you you have to create an environment where they know it's okay to correct you. You have to be correctable. You need people that can say things to you that you don't want to hear. You know, hey, I think you're drinking too much. Hey, I don't think you've been treating your wife right. I was listening to you on the phone in conversation just then with her. That was not right. You shouldn't be talking to your wife that way. Wait a minute. That's none of your business. Yeah, it is. I'm your friend. I'm your brother in Christ. I love you. It is my business. And I want you to do the same thing to me. If you see me sinning in an area too, I want you to correct me too. A person who can't receive correction is bound to make critical errors in judgment. If you can't receive correction and you can only listen to your own, yourself. In other words, that's like having a lawyer defending himself in court. They say you've got a fool for a client. If you can only use your own judgment, you can't listen to anybody else, you've got a fool for a client. You're also, if you, if you can't receive correction, you are, you are stuck in a cycle of destruction that you will not be able to get out of because you can't see it. Because here's the thing, we all have areas in our lives that we're blind to. They're blind spots. We, we, we don't see them. It's not noticeable to us. And, we, we, it, it, and, and I will tell you, I've experienced it. <laughs> no, nobody likes it. It's not fun when somebody says to you, hey, you're, you're not right. The way you're acting is not right. But it's, it's, it's helpful. It's necessary. So the only way to get out is to recognize that I am weak. You're, you're never weaker than when you think you're strong. Pride often begins with a sense of entitlement. For some reason, David thought he deserved it. Or he was, he was entitled. You know, I've suffered. I, it's been a rough year. All this, all this responsibility on me. Nobody understands the responsibility that I carry. Nobody understands the, the load that I'm under. It's not fair. You know, we, you know, I've told you before, you know, every mule thinks their load is the heaviest. We all think the burden that we're carrying is harder than everybody else's burden. The wife thinks her burden is more difficult than the husband. The husband thinks his burden is more difficult than the wife. Everybody thinks that what they're carrying is the most difficult. And in doing so, that 
if you believe that, then that creates a sense of entitlement because I'm suffering more than you are. I deserve a break more than you do. I deserve more. So we deceive ourselves. So how do we get out of pride? The way out of pride is easy. That's the great thing. The way out of pride is easy, easy is that you humble yourself before God. You say, say, God, I need help. But he gives more grace. That is my scripture said, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. How do you get out of pride? You say, help. Help me. David should have turned to any of the spiritual advisors that he had in his life. Nathan, who's later going to come and rebuke him over this, it would have been much better beforehand if he had turned to Nathan and said, Nathan, I need some help here. I'm struggling here. I don't know why I'm struggling. It doesn't make any sense why I'm struggling, but I'm struggling. But you see, to ask for help goes against our pride. That's why asking for help helps us slay our pride. You know, one of the, if you want to deal with alcoholism or addiction, you know one of the first steps you have to take? You have to admit you have a problem. You have to admit, I, I need help. I, you know, I, I've been trying to solve this on my own and I haven't been doing a very good job. I need some help. So, one of the ways... One of the first steps to deal with the pride is that you have to recognize how weak you are. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And then we have to, we have to overcome the inner lies. So what's going, so you have to think, what's going on in David's mind? What's he telling himself that allows him to rationalize this? What's, what's he telling himself? Uh, you know, I mean, so you think, why is it, and we're just, we can only guess, we don't know, I'm, so I'm just throwing out some, some random things. This is not scriptural truth. These are opinions, okay? Uh, why couldn't David sleep that night? You know, maybe it's his 40th birthday. You know, maybe it's his birthday, and nobody threw him a party. He's a little upset. Nobody remembered. Everybody's off to battle. Now, that's the whole thing. It's why isn't David in the battle? That's his place. David's not in place. He's not doing what he should be doing, and so that creates a greater opportunity for temptation. You need to be doing what you should be doing. It reduces the amount of temptation. So David should have been at battle. He's not at battle, and why he's not, it never gives any explanation. He just... You know, maybe, you know, he's like tired. He's like, oh, I'm, I fought too many battles. You know, uh, maybe he's depressed. Now, you know, he's been surviving for uh, the last almost 20 years. He's been surviving within an inch of his life. And now he has the luxury of time and money. He's got a little leisure that he's never had. Did you know that depression rates go up as a society gets more successful? Isn't that crazy? The more affluent a culture or a society becomes, the more depressed people get. Poor people don't get as depressed as rich people. Isn't that? That's depressing. 
more affluent areas, the suicide rate is higher among greater affluence. So maybe he's depressed. He didn't have the luxury of, he didn't have time to be depressed before. He was just trying to stay alive. You, you think in Africa where they're, they're fending for each meal, they're struggling with depression? No, they don't, they're not. They're just, they're just surviving. Depression is a luxury. So, I'm not trying to discount depression, but uh, its effects and how, how, how powerful it is. But in David's situation, maybe for the first time, he's had the time to, for more reflection that he's had, and so he's maybe depressed. Maybe he's pouting. You know, God, he, he, he told God he wanted to build the temple, and then Nathan said, do what's in your heart, and then God told Nathan, go tell David, no, he can't do it. He can't build a temple. He's a man of blood. It's like, it's your fault. <laughs> you made me be a man of blood. I was just a shepherd boy. I didn't want to be a warrior. It wasn't my desire, but yet, uh, so maybe, you know, maybe he's, he's feeling far, sorry, far, sorry for himself. Whatever it is, it's not about, this is not about sexual needs. By this time, he has seven wives. And at least three concubines. So, so he's got seven wives and several concubines. And, and this is not a, about sexual needs. And what and what he and Bathsheba is not at fault here. Bathsheba is bathing in the time of the evening when she was expecting that no one would be out. Uh, when David sent for her, she had little choice but to go. He's the king. He's the all powerful king. He did he did <laughs> this was not a seduction. This is little more than a rape. This is taking a married woman against her will and having her have sex with him. This was a heinous crime that just got worse. So, James says this about, in James chapter 1, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. You, you catch that? They're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown gives birth to death because the wages of sin is death. You're dragged away by your own evil desires. This is what Jesus says about following your heart. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, 
murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus would say to you, don't follow your heart. You need to, you need to follow God. You need to follow his word. You need to submit your heart to the spirit of God. You need a changed heart. But don't follow the impulses of your heart. You see, so how does temptation work? Temptation ap- appeals to the human desires we all have. Temptation works within the human desires we all have. We all have a desire for to be loved. We all have a desire for acceptance. We all have a desire for value. In other words, we, we, want, we want people to value us, to, to consider us worthy. And we all have uh, the need for purpose. And they're all good things. Those aren't bad things. It's not, it's not bad to want to be loved, accepted, valued, and have purpose. Those are all good things. Those are things that God created within us. But the, the heart doesn't care if you meet those needs in a legitimate way or an illegitimate way. The heart doesn't care if you meet those in a, in a God way or in a fleshy way. If you try to meet these needs in a legitimate way, it's good. But if you try to meet them by fornication or coveting, as in David's case, and murder, then you create a cascade of sorrow like he did. So how do we, get, how do we keep from being deceived by, <laughs> being deceived by ourself? How do we keep from believing the lies that the enemy is whispering in our ear? Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that David knew that. I mean, this is actually a psalm that he wrote. So, uh, so think about that. Maybe he wrote this later. But I'm sure that David knew, Thou shalt not have any other gods beside me. But yet he still put himself on the throne of his heart. I'm sure he knew thou shalt not steal, but he stole another man's wife. I'm sure he knew thou shalt not covet, but he looked across the rooftop and desired her. I know that he said that the word said thou shalt not commit adultery, but he did anyway. And I'm positive he knew it said thou shalt not murder. David broke five of the Ten Commandments by these actions. He knew the Word of God. He knew this but he ignored it. You see, the Word of God, you have to think that the Word of God is kind of like manna. It has a manna quality in your heart. You know what, man, the, 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 the essence of manna is that they had to collect fresh manna every day. Now, the Word of God is eternal. I'm not saying that the Word of God is this way, but I'm saying how it affects our heart. You kind of think it's like bread. Uh, it's the bread of life. What happens when you eat bread? Now, a lot of you had a donut when you came in here today. I know you did. Admit it. It's okay. You had a donut. That's what they're there for. But, you know, in a little while, you're going to want to have something else. 
because you're going to be hungry. God created the Word of God in such a way in our life that we need to be continually partaking of the Word of God because manna didn't store. They couldn't keep manna overnight because it spoiled if they kept it overnight. And it's not that the Word of God spoils, but God wants the Word of God to be continued. He wants you to feed on it, to live on it, that it be fresh, that, that it be fresh bread in your life. There's a, a manna quality to it. But so, G, so David knew the Word of God. And the Word of God is powerful. But the Word of God's not enough. Because if the Word of God had been enough, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come. If, 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 if we could have, by the Word of God, kept from sinning, then Jesus would not have come. But the Word actually creates knowledge of sin. So what do we have to do? We, have, we need more than just the Word of God. We need the Word of God. We need what Jesus had. When Jesus stood against the temptation of Satan in the wilderness, before he went into the wilderness, he was empowered by the Spirit of God. So when he came against the enemy with the Word of God, it was by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So one of the ways we have to fight temptation is we have to recognize, we have to fight temptation by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Paul even says it to the Ephesians this way. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, to put on the belt of truth, to, to, to surround your life with truth, to, to know what the truth of God is, to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Do you understand that you have righteousness? Where did it come from? You have the righteousness of God in Christ. It came through the work of Christ. It didn't come through your work. So you stand in his righteousness. So we use that. That's one of our weapons. It protects us to understand that we have the breastplate of righteousness. We have our feet shod with the gospel. That is our purpose. We have an eternal purpose. God has brought us into the gospel. We are bearers of the gospel. We have purpose. Our purpose is to spread the gospel. We need to live lives in such a way that they are a testimony of who Jesus is and what he accomplished. We need to, we need to put the gospel on our feet. We need to carry the gospel with us where we go. We need to live in the gospel. You know, you, know, you, you live in your feet, right? What happens if your feet hurt? You're miserable. So he gives us the gospel so that we can carry it everywhere we go. He gives us the shield of faith. I think it's, uh, I think it's interesting you think about that faith is our shield. Say, so what are you holding there? I don't see anything. It's a faith shield. 
We walk by faith, not by sight. In other words, faith is, in, faith is, is physically invisible. What are, you, what are you holding an invisible, a made-up invisible shield for? Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to quench the fiery darts of the enemy. I'm trusting in God. My trust is in God. My, it's, it's a divine ability that God gives me. I'm trusting God. The shield of faith, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation is so important. The helmet of salvation is... What do you believe about God and what do you believe about yourself in relationship to God because of what Christ has done? Because what you believe, what you believe is one of your greatest weapons against the lies that you will, isn't that that crazy? Think about it. What you believe is a weapon against what you believe. So you need to know what you believe based on what God, who God is and what Jesus is and what he has done and the complete work of Christ and the finished work of Christ and how that applies to who I am in Christ and because of whom I am in Christ, I can stand against all the power of the enemy. I can stand against these lies. So when the enemy says, yeah, you know, you don't have value. I say, oh, yes, I do. I do have value because I, I'm a child of God. I'm a son of God. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Yeah, but 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 you had a bad attitude yesterday. Yeah, I, I did. And I'm probably going to have a bad attitude tomorrow. But, but God is faithful. God is in my life. He's working in my life. He's not finished with me yet. And so we, we, we rejoice in that. So we actually war. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God through the pulling down of strongholds. So God works by his word and by his spirit in our minds to overcome the false beliefs in our minds. So what we believe is so vital. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So we need the Spirit of God and the Word of God empowering us to stand against temptation and sin. Jude 24 tells us this. Now, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. And amen. So, how do you keep from falling? You got to deal with pride. You gotta you gotta deal with the fear of being found out. Satan wants to use darkness to keep to keep you in bondage. He likes to keep he likes he likes to get you to mess up. Satan is the accuser and the excuser of the brethren. 
So he begins with the excuse, like somehow he did with David. David, you deserve this. You've had a rough time. Look, oh, isn't she beautiful? Oh, you deserve her. You deserve her. And so he excuses the sin and encourages us to sin. And then when David sinned, then he was accused. You're such a lousy person. I don't know why you even try to serve God. You can't be faithful to God. You call yourself a Christian. When people find out what you've done. So he continues this cycle of excusing and accusing and excusing and accusing. And the only way out is humility before God. The only way out is to say, God, I have really messed up. And, and you, have to be a, you have to be free of the fear of being exposed by fully exposing yourself to the God who already knows. Isn't that something? We're afraid to expose to God what he already knows. We're free. So Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Let's stand. <coughs> Excuse me. I didn't do that right. <coughs> I just coughed in the microphone. <laughs> if there's something you're hiding, freedom comes when you bring it to the light. Darkness only breeds the bondage. And the chains get greater. But in Christ there is grace. There is forgiveness. There is freedom. Because he's already paid the price for the sin. We can stand in freedom. Because we can stand not only with the word of God. Empowered by the word of God. But empowered by the spirit of God. So that he can at once make us new creatures in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit that he can create in us a clean heart that he can make us fresh and new in him so father we ask you today to do your work in our hearts to set us free from the hidden bondages the things that Satan is trying to hold us in darkness and in sin and that you have set us free by the complete work of Christ on the cross and by that work, you have released the Spirit of God to us so that we now, as believers in Christ, we don't have just the Word of God to stand. We have the Word of God and we have the Spirit of God to stand fast against the lies and the deception of the enemy. And Lord, I ask you to show us every area where we have believed a lie and it has created a bondage. And we ask you, Lord, to set us free by the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.